the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Kara. And I'm Missy. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the menstrual cycle and hormones. Yay, menstrual cycle. One of my favorite things to talk about. Because if you don't understand what's happening with hormones in the menstrual cycle, you're kind of lost for how to treat it. Yeah, and really kind of lost about how to respond to anything going on with gynecologic care. So if it's abnormal uterine bleeding or even early pregnancy stuff, right? Right, right. So when we talk to students, we hear a lot about like, oh, it all makes sense when you explain it this way. Right. And it's, as Missy said, so important to get a really good understanding of it early on, and it will help you understand so much about the menstrual cycle and so much about caring for women. I agree. And maybe today we should talk a little bit too about some bleeding abnormalities in the the nomenclature. Like what do we call those things? Okay. We should talk a little bit about that maybe at the end. That sounds good. But maybe let's start with the normal menstrual cycle. No, I think that's great. So what are our bodies doing? What are women's bodies doing at the beginning of the menstrual cycle? Well, so one of the first things I'm going to say is like hit pause on this podcast go to Google or whatever search engine you use and type in like image of the menstrual cycle because you and I are such visual learners and we love having that that depiction of what's going on in the ovary, what's going on with our hormone levels, what's going on in the endometrium. And it kind of marches across from day one through day 30 or so of a menstrual cycle. And that can be really helpful as we have this conversation. Right. And I also love that follicular view, like what's happening with the follicle at each. Yeah, absolutely. So that leads into we have things going on in the follicles and the ovaries, and we also have things going on in the endometrium. And usually we'll break the cycle down into two different sections, or at least two different sections for each of those things, whether it's in the ovary or it's in the endometrium. So why don't we start with what we call the follicular phase? Okay, so we're in the ovary and we're having that recruitment of a dominant follicle early in the cycle and follicle stimulating hormone is really helping with this development and we're building that one great recruit for the month right that's that follicle that we're hoping will be released at the time of ovulation and we tend to think of ovulation as being at mid-cycle but really ovulation is 14 days before the next cycle starts and so when we have ovulation it has kind of a programmed cell length of time that it will last. It's that corpus luteum or the luteum um, where we have luteinizing hormone, which is our ovulation hormone, and that's that release of that follicle. So I think what you're saying then is the luteal phase is actually a set amount of time. Right. So if a, so if a patient has a, a 40-day cycle, that that luteal phase is still only going to be 14 days. And the longer part of the cycle is actually the follicular phase. Right. The luteal phase is pretty fixed and all of the variability is in that early part of the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. And that just has to do with that corpus luteum and how its lifespan. Right. I think of it as apoptosis. It has programmed cell death at a certain time if fertilization doesn't occur. And so it is set at 14 days. So if we're looking at a patient who has a long menstrual cycle, we're really thinking about what hormones are influencing the length of that first phase. Or I'm thinking that they didn't ovulate at all because they didn't have that trigger for that 14-day luteal phase. Great. So what's next? So then we can think about what's going on in the endometrium or that lining of the uterus. And so 
We want to remember that the first day of the menstrual cycle is that first day of bleeding. And so that first cycle is the menses. And that can vary in normal length, anywhere from, you know, maybe two to seven days of bleeding for women um, can be any different amount and different amounts of bleeding can be normal. But that's that first section. And then we go in to the proliferative phase. And so that occurs right after menses. If you think of proliferation or growing, um, that is where the cells of the endometrium increase in size and number. And then as we go, you know, to ovulation and pass, we move into the secretory phase. And so we've already proliferated, we've already increased our number and size of cells. And now those cells are filling with lots of fats and sugars, and they're getting nice and juicy and thick, and being totally ready for if implantation should occur, that they've got that nice, robust little housing for where we could have implantation. And that's the secretory phase. So I think I just heard you say that the first half of the menstrual cycle has two names. It's both the follicular phase, but it's also the proliferative phase. And that has to do with what's going on at the follicle and what's going on in the endometrium. You got it. And then in the second half after ovulation, we have the luteal phase in the ovary or with the follicle. And then we have the secretory phase in the endometrium. Awesome. That's such a great way to just remember how to divide that up. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't forget what's going on with our hormones um, as well. And we've talked a little bit about this as we talked about the follicle in that, you know, in the first part of the cycle, follicle stimulating hormone is really the predominant hormone of what's triggering the growth of that predominant follicle. And then luteinizing hormone being LH, that that hormone that peaks right at ovulation and helps us then obviously go on to develop the corpus luteum. So you know, I love some HPA access discussion. I know you do. The hypothalamus, pituitary, and ovary on an axis, HPOA or HPA. And so this, again, for me, I feel like when you're thinking about clinical practice and taking care of patients, if you understand where the hormones come from and how they turn on and turn off, you will also be able to get at a more clear differential of maybe what's happening with your patient. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive just a little bit in to the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and then what's going on with our ovaries with estradiol and inhibin and progestin. So if we start with the hypothalamus, it secretes gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and that gonadotropin-releasing hormone goes to the anterior pituitary. In the anterior pituitary, um, that gonadotropin-releasing hormone binds, and this tells the anterior pituitary, okay, it's time to produce some FSH and LH. And we talked about how that is stimulating the follicle to grow. It's also triggering when it's time for ovulation. But the LH and FSH travel down through the bloodstream to the ovaries. And in the ovaries, that LH and FSH bind there and stimulate the production of estrogen and inhibin. The estrogen helps us to regulate the menstrual cycle. It's essential to many of the body processes. We're all really pretty familiar with estrogen, but we also can't forget about inhibin, which inhibits activin, and that is usually responsible for stimulating even more gonadotropin-releasing hormone. So there's a couple of hormones released there that as they rise, that estrogen and that inhibin cause a negative feedback on the pituitary and the hypothalamus and say, okay, 
we're good. We've released enough. We don't need any more. Can you guys shut down for a bit? I also heard you just say when you were talking about estrogen that it helps regulate the menstrual cycle. So that's also a good thing to always remember when you're thinking about contraception, that contraception is an estrogen. Right. It's really progestin. And the estrogen's just there for what you said, which is to regulate the menstrual cycle. Yeah, estrogen I also think of oftentimes as um, helping to build that endometrium, right? Like it's trying to it's trying to proliferate. And that's why we can't have unopposed estrogen in menopausal women with an intact uterus. We don't want to cause um, a situation where we're hyper-stimulating that endometrium. So that's really what estrogen does. But you are so right about contraception. Progestin is a really, really important part about stopping ovulation from occurring. So from your explanation, I understand that there's positive feedback mechanisms where hypothalamus feeds pituitary, which feeds ovaries. But then there are hormones that tell the that the ovaries send in a negative way to turn things off. They do. And the really interesting thing is that as that follicle develops in the ovary, the estrogen levels continue to increase. So they reach a certain set point where it's that negative feedback back to the hypothalamus and the pituitary. But then the estrogen level still rises because we've had that follicular development. And so once it gets to an even higher level, it actually stimulates it back to a positive feedback again and says, okay, we didn't have fertilization occur. We didn't have implantation occur. It's time to restart the cycle. And so very interesting that estradiol, estrogen, can be both negative feedback and positive feedback within the same menstrual cycle. And that's something that sets it apart from other hormonal systems in our body. Right. So what does progesterone do in this? Well, interestingly, I mean, progestin is really there to support early pregnancy, right? And so we will have progestin released from, particularly from the corpus luteum, so that before the placenta could be take over and support a pregnancy, that corpus luteum and the progestin will will do that. So understanding that that's the role of progestin may also be an indicator in early pregnancy loss if the corpus luteum is not producing enough progesterone to support a pregnancy. Right, right. And that's, you know, sometimes a little controversial about whether or not we supplement with progestin or not, but it is the rationale behind it and understanding the physiology and pathophys. That's so great. This has been, this is such like a nice reminder of all of those hormones that are important during the menstrual cycle. And if you do understand how the HPA axis works and those negative and positive feedback mechanisms, it'll also help you understand not just the menstrual cycle and support of early pregnancy, but it can also help you think about menopause. And when you think about menopause, you're it's like your brain, your hypothalamus and your pituitary are sending a ton of signals to the ovary lots of FSH to the ovary and lots of hormone. And the ovaries are like, eh, I'm not sure if I really want to do that. I, um, maybe the ovaries are like, I'm tired and I'm tired of spitting out eggs. Sure. And so we do see an increase in FSH in women who are uh, perimenopausal and menopausal as the ovaries start to produce less estrogen and can't turn that mechanism off. Similar to PCOS, right? So we'll sometimes see elevated levels of the FSH as well, because in many women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they're also not ovulating. They're not getting that trigger and that rise. And so follicle stimulating hormone will be quite high in those individuals as well. I think this conversation does is a great service to students because understanding really what the implications of the axis are for how we look at labs, 
Yes. How we make diagnosis, how we decide about differentials, not just in the, in, you know, childbearing years, but through perimenopause and menopause and in looking at, you know, ovulatory function. Right. And I'm not someone that checks a lot of hormone levels. I really feel like many of these things are clinical diagnoses and we can tell so much from the signs and symptoms of ovulation and the signs and symptoms of normal menses and so forth. And so we don't always need lab values to tell what's going on, but it is really good to have an understanding of what's normal. And again, that history component from the patient is really important. Now you mentioned early on that we should talk a little bit about some of the different bleeding patterns and maybe how we talk about them. Um, Again, you know, understanding that a normal menstrual cycle will occur about every 21 to 35 days. Um, If we're getting out beyond 35 days, I really worry about whether someone's ovulating or not, because again, they don't have that trigger of timing. Um, The number of days of flow can be, again, anywhere from two to seven or so. And it's considered to be normal amount of flow if it's somewhere between 30 and 80 milliliters total of blood loss. And that seems so low to me, but someone did the studies and they found that that was the normal amount of bleeding. Yes. I know women say in the office often that they feel like they're hemorrhaging or that they have so much bleeding. Yeah. It's so subjective. Everyone's experience of what's normal for them can be very different as well. Exactly. And then, you know, so when we talk about normal, then that makes us think about is someone bleeding more frequently than that or less frequently than that? Are they having heavy amounts of bleeding and that sort of thing? And FIGO, the federal, um, uh, the, the um, International Federation of Gynecologic um, providers have come up with some classifications about how we talk about that. And you might historically hear people talk about um, Minaraja or metroraja, those sorts of things. But they've really become more clear in how we talk about bleeding patterns and amounts of bleeding. And so instead of saying menorrhagia, we might just say heavy menstrual bleeding. And it's just made it a lot more clear. I agree. I remember in school trying to figure out menorrhagia, metroraja, menometroraja. Exactly. Like dysmenorrhea, which I always knew meant painful. Right. Period. But it does, it has simplified some of the language. It has. And we don't really talk about breakthrough bleeding anymore. We talk about intermenstrual bleeding. So you have normal menses and how frequently they occur and what the amount is, but you sometimes have bleeding between those periods. And that would be intermenstrual bleeding. Um, I think we used to talk about polymenorrhea or oligomenorrhea. And now we'll say um, frequent menstrual bleeding or infrequent menstrual bleeding. And it's just a lot more clear language. And we can also add those ovulatory and anovulatory words too. Whether or not we think somebody is actually having an anovulatory cycle. And what would make you, because these are some of my favorite words, you know, what makes me think that someone is ovulating? And so are they having middle schmerz pain? or that pain, that one-sided low abdominal pelvic pain at the time of ovulation? Are they um, having uh, spinbarkite or spinbarkite, which is that egg white-like cervical mucus? Um, Even dysmenorrhea and PMS symptoms are tied to ovulatory cycles. And so if someone is having some of those different symptomatologies, we also think that that makes it likely that they're ovulating. But most importantly, it's are they having those regular length cycles um, that really leads us to ovulation. It's interesting now that I've had a hysterectomy because I don't bleed anymore, which is fantastic. Praise God. Hallelujah. But 
Also, I do feel that once a month, mood change, bloaty, right-sided pain or left-sided pain. Right. So for me, I'm like, oh, at my age, I'm still ovulating, but I just don't have that cue anymore of having a regular menstrual cycle. Right. And I think, you know, because we've had combined hormonal contraceptive use or even our IUD, sometimes some individuals just aren't as familiar with what their normal non-medicated menstrual cycles are like. And so helping them understand that taking a menstrual history can be really, really helpful. And having a couple of months of a history um, can be really, really helpful too, because a one month snapshot doesn't tell us a whole lot. So many things linked to the understanding of the menstrual cycle. Absolutely. So hopefully this was helpful. Yeah. And I do think it's, it's, important for clinicians to even be able to explain some of these things to their patients and having a really clear understanding of how you would explain it maybe in a more in more plain language to your patient about why things are happening is also really important. Yeah, it's so helpful and empowering the more you know about yourself. Um, and if you can share that as a provider and helping your patients understand, and we've already talked about it, how it can be so helpful to us as clinicians to understand it but it can also help our patients if they're planning a family, if they're hoping to conceive soon, if they have an understanding of their menstrual cycle that can help, or if they're wanting to prevent pregnancy and, and, you know, use contraception or avoid intercourse at certain times. So they avoid a pregnancy. Understanding your cycle can be so important. And understanding the cycle just for the provider and the ability to, to have a good list of differentials. Absolutely. So we hope you enjoyed this time today with us talking about the menstrual cycle. So fun. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Take care. 